You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 212, Port Royal and Kettle Creek. The British Southern Command had burst into new activity, beginning with the capture of Savannah, Georgia, in December 1778. After Colonel Archibald Campbell captured Savannah, General Augustine Prevost marched a larger force up from St. Augustine, Florida, to occupy the area around Savannah. The British offensive began just as American General Robert Howe was turning over command to General Benjamin Lincoln. General Lincoln had only reached Charleston, South Carolina, by the time the British attacked Savannah, Georgia. Lincoln then moved to the Georgia-South Carolina border to confront the enemy. This led to a standoff and kept the British penned up in and around Savannah. And that is where I left things a few weeks ago in episode 208. In the following weeks and months, the British attempted to expand on their victory at Savannah, and the Americans tried to stop them. Eager to maintain the offensive, General Prevost ordered an attack on Port Royal, South Carolina, about 40 miles from Savannah. This, he hoped, would be the beginning of a British toehold in a second rebellious colony. He also hoped that the action would distract the Americans under General Lincoln from the British occupation of Georgia and get the Continentals to deploy more of their forces to the South Carolina coast. Port Royal was an island on the coast, meaning it would be more easily defensible and could be backed up by the British Navy if needed. Local intelligence also indicated that there were many loyalists in the area who would support the British liberation of the region. The British at Savannah had a ship of the line available to them, the Vigilant. Now, this was a smaller, sixth-rate ship with about 20 cannons on it, the ship had been damaged months earlier in the same storm that dispersed the French and British fleets off of Newport, Rhode Island. By the time the Vigilant reached Savannah, Georgia, it was deemed unseaworthy and incapable of sailing on its own. It was still capable of floating and housing its artillery. So the British towed the ship to the waters off Port Royal Island to serve as a floating battery to back up the soldiers as they landed on shore. Aboard several smaller ships, about 200 regulars, under the command of Major William Gardner, set sail for Port Royal in late January. However, since they had to tow the Vigilant with rowed longboats, the move took several days. Port Royal Island's defenses consisted of a small defensive area at the town of Beaufort, known as Fort Littleton. There were a few dozen Continentals at the fort under the command of Captain John de Treville. When Captain de Treville learned of the approaching British, he knew he could not withstand an assault or siege, and in order to avoid capture and deny the fort to the enemy, Captain de Treville 
spiked the fort's cannons, and blew up the main bastion. He then evacuated his men back to the mainland before the British arrived on the island. General Clinton, however, did not want to cede any North Carolina territory to the enemy. By the time the British landed on Port Royal, Lincoln had already dispatched a 300-man force under the command of Continental General William Moultrie, the same officer who had defended Fort Sullivan in Charleston Harbor back in 1776. Most of the men under Moultrie were South Carolina militia, who Moultrie himself noted were ill-trained and ill-disciplined. A few Continental soldiers accompanied the brigade, as did two local artillery companies from Charleston, headed by former Congressman Edward Rutledge and Thomas Hayward. Moultrie's forces crossed onto the other end of the island on February 1st, a day before the British landing. On February 2nd, the British soldiers landed on Port Royal Island, local loyalists served as guides, and the British met no serious opposition as they unloaded from their ships and began to march across the island. It wasn't until the following day, February 3rd, that Moultrie received word of the British landing and marched out to meet them. The two forces met near the middle of the island. Major Gardner advanced to the top of a hill and had his men fix bayonets inside a tree line. General Moultrie formed his men in a line in a nearby field in sight of the enemy. To supplement his lines, he deployed two six-pound field cannon in the middle of his line and two smaller two-pound cannon on the right flank. General Moultrie noted later that the armies reversed their usual operations with the Americans out in the open field and the British using a forest for cover. The Americans outnumbered the British and also had the advantage of the field artillery, while the British had none. The Americans opened fire, but were out of musket range and did little damage. After about 45 minutes, the Americans were beginning to run low on ammunition. Moultrie began preparations to withdraw when he realized that the British were also beginning to withdraw. Major Gardner opted not to charge a superior force with cannon, and he had decided to march back to the coast where the British would have the cover of the cannons from the vigilant. Seeing the British retreat, Moultrie ordered a company of militia cavalry to cut off the British. The cavalry managed to get behind the British retreat and captured a wounded captain and 25 other enemy soldiers. However, there were not enough cavalry to contain them. The prisoners decided to make a break for it, with about half of them escaping back to British lines. The British had taken substantial casualties from the American artillery, reporting at least 40 killed or wounded. The Americans reported 7 killed and 18 wounded. The Americans declared victory for the battle as the British had retreated back to their boats and returned to Savannah. British regulars rarely back down against militia, even if the militia has superior numbers. After the return to Savannah, General Prevost criticized Gardner for moving his troops too far in advance of the ships and protection of their cannons. The men had to fight their way back to the ships in some of the bloodiest fighting of the day. But if the Americans had failed to bring up artillery, the battle might have gone very differently. So, by the second week of February, the British found themselves back in Savannah and still facing the larger danger from Lincoln's forces only a few miles away in Perrysburg. Now, recall that 
Colonel Archibald Campbell had captured Savannah in late December 1778. Then he turned over command to General Augustine Prevost in January 1779, after Prevost had marched up from St. Augustine, Florida. After that, Campbell took an expedition up to take control of Augusta by the end of January, about the same time that Major Gardner was moving to take Port Royal in South Carolina. Campbell's purpose in taking Augusta was to establish a British presence in the backcountry. Once again, the British were promised that if they raised the standard, thousands of loyalists would heed the call and take back the colony for the crown. The British hoped to raise a loyalist army of 6,000 new recruits in order to solidify control of Georgia and then take the offensive into South Carolina. In taking Augusta, the British saw the local militia flee the town with no real resistance. Colonel Archibald Campbell then began taking loyalty oaths and trying to reestablish the loyalist militia in the backcountry in order to secure Georgia, again with plans to take an invasion force into South Carolina. To assist in recruitment, Campbell had brought with him a prominent colonist from the Carolinas named John Boyd. As a loyalist, Boyd had made his way to British-occupied New York, where he assured General Clinton that he could raise a loyalist army in the Carolina backcountry if Clinton could get some regulars down there for the men to rally around. Boyd had received a militia commission as a lieutenant colonel and joined Colonel Campbell for the invasion of Savannah. Boyd then made his way through the Carolina backcountry, recruiting his loyalist army well into North Carolina. Now, these were the same Scotch-Irish loyalists who had risen up to support the British when they first tried to land at Cape Fear in 1776. The Patriots at that time had decimated and scattered them at Moores Creek Bridge, something I discussed back in episode 82. After that, the Loyalists had mostly laid low and accepted Patriot rule. But now, with the British back in Georgia, this was the opportunity for the Loyalists to rise up once again and help the regulars put down this rebellion. The problem was that the Patriots had controlled the Carolinas for three years. The Loyalists knew that taking up arms against the Patriots would mean that their properties could be confiscated or destroyed. Many of those who heeded Boyd's call and marched off with him saw their homes burned while they were away. These volunteers could also be hanged as traitors to the state. Many of the more prominent Loyalists took the safest option and chose not to join Colonel Boyd. They stayed on their plantations and remained neutral. While recruiting was not as fruitful as hoped, Boyd did manage to get several hundred men in North Carolina, then added to his recruits as his Loyalist militia marched through South Carolina to join with the British at Augusta. As Boyd approached Augusta, his army had reached somewhere between 600 and 800 men. Now, the Patriots were watching these events unfold as they reacted. Colonel Andrew Pickens of South Carolina raised an army of about 350, mostly South Carolina militia, with some Georgia militia joining him as well. These men were to challenge British control of Augusta. Since the British force at Augusta was three times the size of his militia army, Pickens mostly used his militia to prevent the British from sending out small recruiting or foraging parties and generally harassing the British garrison from a distance. Campbell had deployed Captain John Hamilton with about 300 Tories 
to secure various outposts around Augusta. He divided his forces to take control of more area. Pickens' patriots came after Hamilton, who had about a hundred loyalists with him at the time. The loyalists took refuge in a small redoubt known as Carr's Fort. The Americans began a siege, hoping to capture the loyalists before Campbell could send out a relief force from Augusta. Just as the siege was getting started, Pickens received word that Boyd's loyalist army was in the area and trying to get to Augusta. So Pickens gave up on the smaller force in hopes of intercepting Boyd's militia. The loyalists under Boyd were in South Carolina still near the Georgia border. On February 11th, they approached an area known as Vans Creek, where a Patriot blockhouse guarded the ford. There were only eight Patriots guarding the ford when confronted by up to 800 Loyalists. However, the Patriots had a defensive wall backed by two swivel guns. They opened fire on the Loyalist attackers. Another 40 Patriots quickly crossed the river in canoes to supplement the defense. Now, Boyd was not really looking for an encounter at this time. It is possible that many of his men did not even have arms, something they would receive once they reached Augusta. There is also some evidence that many of the Loyalists under Boyd's command had come under pressure to do so and were looking for pretty much any opportunity to desert. As a result, Boyd opted to avoid having to storm this blockhouse and instead moved his men to a point about 10 miles upstream where they could cross unimpeded into Georgia. After that, Colonel Boyd rested easy. He was inside British lines, only a few miles from the Loyalist militia camp. Boyd awaited word from Augusta about connecting his militia to the British regulars who were already there. His army set up camp to rest from its long march near a small stream known as Kettle Creek. Now, Boyd had not heard that Campbell had decided to abandon Augusta and had put his men on the march back to Savannah. So his camp was more isolated than he knew. The Patriots, under Pickens, had not given up the chase. Pickens marched his Patriot militia back across the Savannah River into Georgia. On the morning of February 14th, Pickens divided his Patriots into three columns and attacked the Loyalist camp under Boyd. The Loyalists probably had close to twice as many men as the attacking Patriots, but they were taken by surprise. Boyd had failed to put out sufficient pickets or patrols to keep watch for any enemy. As I said, it's also possible that many of the Loyalists still did not have muskets. Boyd quickly organized a defensive barrier where he and about a hundred of his men confronted the attackers, while the bulk of his Loyalists moved to higher ground in their rear. The defense was pretty effective, with the battle raging for more than 90 minutes. Eventually, the larger Patriot force managed to outflank the Loyalist line and force the defenders to retreat back toward the main British line to the rear. During this retreat, Colonel Boyd received a mortal wound and would die later that evening. The Patriots continued their assault up the heights against the main Loyalist force. Boyd's second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel John Moore, was also killed or wounded. Third-in-command, Major William Augustus Spurgeon, Jr., attempted to rally the Loyalists, but failed. The terrified Loyalists broke and ran, leaving behind their horses, supplies, and tents, fleeing into the swamps. The Patriots overran their lines in a complete rout. 
the Loyalists suffered between 40 and 70 killed, with another 75 or so captured, many of whom were also wounded. Most significantly, many of the Loyalists used this opportunity to flee and return home. Some of these men surrendered later while trying to get away. As a result, only 270 Loyalists made it to Augusta, far less than half of those recruited. The Patriots suffered only 7 to 9 killed and between 14 and 23 wounded or missing. They also managed to free 33 Patriots, whom the Loyalists had taken prisoner during their march from North Carolina. Now, the Loyalists, who became prisoners at Kettle Creek, had to suffer the wrath of their Patriot neighbors. Even before the battle, North Carolina Patriots reported burning the homes of many of the men who had left with Colonel Boyd's army. Those taken prisoner were not treated as prisoners of war. Rather, they were prosecuted as criminals who had committed treason by taking up arms against the state government. These men had also incurred the wrath of locals by looting and pillaging homes during their march from North Carolina to Georgia. At first, Colonel Pickens occupied Augusta following the British withdrawal. He took about 75 prisoners captured at Kettle Creek and put them under guard in Augusta. He also put out word that any other Loyalists who had escaped Kettle Creek should turn themselves in. They would have to post bond, and then they would be released. Another 75 or so Loyalists took advantage of this offer and turned themselves in. It turned out, though, that the offer was a lie. Pickin threw these men into prison with the men who had been captured on the battlefield. After about three weeks, the Patriots marched the Loyalist prisoners to Fort 96 in South Carolina where they were turned over to civilian authorities for trial. There, roughly 150 men were held in terrible conditions in an overcrowded brick jail inside the fort. Now, the prisoners had arrived on March 10th. The trials had been scheduled to begin the day before, but had been postponed. The trials finally did begin on March 22nd, and it took about three weeks to try all of the prisoners, concluding on April 12th. There are no surviving records of the trial, but we know the prisoners' fates were decided by a jury selected by the local sheriff, William Moore. Of the 150 or so prisoners, roughly half of them were released without being found guilty. Since there aren't any court records, it's not exactly clear why. Another 50 or so prisoners were found guilty of treason, but were granted reprieves. Many of the prisoners had argued that they had been forced into joining Boyd's army, either by pretense or threats. For whatever reason, only 22 of the men received death sentences. The court scheduled the hanging for April 17th, and according to one of the condemned prisoners, the gallows were constructed on the site of the jail. Five of the prisoners, Charles Draper, John Anderson, James Lindley, Samuel Clegg, and Akila Hall, went to the gallows that morning and were hanged. Again, we don't have details on all the condemned men, but for those for whom we do have details, it appears that those condemned had held positions of prominence in the colonies before the war and may have served as officers under Colonel Boyd. Clegg, for example, had served as a tax collector in South Carolina and had served in the Colonial Assembly. Hall had been a wealthy plantation owner and had actively recruited for Colonel Boyd. Lindley had served as a Justice of the Peace in North Carolina 
and had been a captain in the provincial militia. He had also been captured and released by the Patriots on one prior occasion. After the hanging of the first five men, a message arrived from Governor Rutledge of South Carolina with a writ of habeas corpus ordering the condemned men to be moved to Orangeburg. So the remaining 17 condemned prisoners escaped the hangman's noose and were sent off as prisoners. The reprieve may have been the result of British threats to begin hanging American prisoners in retaliation. In any event, none of the other 17 men were ever executed and eventually were exchanged or released. I'll get into those details more next week when we cover the continuing fighting between Georgia and South Carolina at the Battle of Briar Creek. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply hey thanks for joining the american revolution podcast after show Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Kurt Avard. I also want to welcome this week the new Patreon Privy Council member, Virginia Starks, as well as new Minutemen, Dave Herbert and Justin Leffler. I appreciate all your support, along with everyone else who has pledged to support this podcast on Patreon. Thanks also for one-time gifts via PayPal from Paul Kallenberger, Karen Costello, and Maxwell Mortimer. Anyone who wants to make a one-time gift to the show can follow the links on my website for PayPal, Venmo, or several other methods. All of your financial support really helps me to cover my growing costs and keep this podcast going. I also wanted to mention one quick piece of personal news. I've been elected to serve as the next president of the American Revolution Roundtable of South Jersey. My hope is that I will be able to start putting some of those roundtable presentations online and make them available to all. However, I still have to talk to the board and we'll see how all that works out. Now this week, we looked at two American victories in the South. The British landing in Port Royal, South Carolina, was the first action by regulars in that state since 1776, when General Clinton attempted to take Fort Sullivan in Charleston Harbor. So, the Americans fended off the British at Port Royal. Now, as we'll see next week, the British were far from ending their attempts to move north. British leaders wanted to claim Georgia as a win and quickly move into South Carolina as an even bigger win. 
Much of those hopes, however, were dashed at Kettle Creek. This is not a battle you hear a lot about, but I think its importance is really overlooked. The battle at Kettle Creek shut down any hope of the British recruiting large numbers of Loyalists from the backcountry in the southern colonies. Britain's whole policy of colonial domination relied on Loyalist regiments supplementing their relatively small numbers of British regulars that were all Britain could deploy at the time. As a result of Kettle Creek, British occupation of Savannah became a smaller-scale version of the British occupation of New York City. The regulars were pretty well hemmed in around the city and could not move to pacify the remainder of the colony. They were also reliant on imported foods and supplies. In other words, the colonial occupation was a continuing burden on London's resources, not a help. Kettle Creek convinced many people who might have been convinced to serve as loyalists that Britain's chances did not look so good, and that punishment, even a hangman's noose, might await them if they dared to show sympathy toward crown rule. As a result, Britain never recruited sufficient loyalists to retake the colonies. One other point I guess I kind of glossed over in the main show, the loyalist commander, Colonel Boyd, who lost at Kettle Creek, uh, is a bit of a mystery. The British colonel, Archibald Campbell, only refers to him as Colonel Boyd. Now, some sources believe that this is James Boyd. Others think his name is John Boyd. We really don't know a whole lot about him or even exactly where he's from. South Carolina Colonel Andrew Pickens noted that the mortally wounded Colonel Boyd asked him to return a brooch to his wife on a plantation in South Carolina, so presumably that's where he originally came from. There were Boyds who lived near Kettle Creek in Georgia, and they may have been kin to the commander. But whatever his true identity, Colonel Boyd's hopes of becoming a military leader in the effort to return the southern colonies to crown rule died along with him at Kettle Creek. And as I said, it really was critical to the British war plans to bring along these local would-be loyalists into the crown rule and make them part of a loyalist army. If you want to read more about this, my book recommendation this week is about locals in Georgia and how they became convinced to back the Patriots. It's called Land and Allegiance in Revolutionary Georgia by Leslie Hall. This is a relatively short book, well under 200 pages, not counting notes and index. It also covers the whole course of events during the Revolution in Georgia. It's not really focused just on the events of 1779 but it does give a good overview of the efforts by both sides to win the hearts and minds of the Georgia population, and their efforts also similarly impacted those in Carolina. I could not find too much out about the author, except that Hall works at Western Washington University Library and is currently a retired volunteer. The book appears to be written for college students, so maybe you'll find it a little dry, but I think it covers the topic well. And as I said, it's not too long. The book is available on Amazon, but for a book published in 2001, there are not a lot of low-cost used copies available. If you just want to browse the book, there is a free online version that you can borrow from archive.org. One of the big reasons, besides the loss of the battle itself at Kettle Creek, discouraged Loyalist activity can be attributable to the trials that were held in South Carolina after the battle. 
and the hanging of several of the leading loyalists. If you want to read more about the trials at Fort 96, then you'll want to check out my online recommendation this week. It's a journal article from the South Carolina Historical Magazine called The Loyalist Trials at 96 in 1779. The article was written for the Bicentennial in 1979 by Robert Scott Davis Jr. It's available on JSTOR, although you may need to sign up for a free registration before you can read the whole article online. Again, you want to look up by the title, The Loyalist Trials at 96 in 1779. Of course, you can also find a direct link to the article on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. My question this week comes from a friend of the show, James Early. James has a history podcast of his own, actually several. One of them is called Key Battles of the American Revolution, which you may find interesting as a real summary of the key military turning points of the war. James also stopped by Philadelphia during a trip recently, and we were able to get together. Anyway, James asks, at the time of the Revolutionary War, the British Army had four ranks of generals, brigadier, major, lieutenant, and full general. By contrast, the Continental Army only used the ranks of brigadier and major general, except for Washington, who was, of course, a lieutenant general. They had no full generals. Why was the Continental Army so stingy in granting general officer ranks? Well, James, first, Washington's formal title was not lieutenant general. It was general and commander-in-chief. There was no rank of lieutenant general in the Continental Army. Later in life, during the quasi-war with France in 1798, Washington did receive the rank of lieutenant general in the U.S. Army from President John Adams and this was deemed equivalent to the rank that he held in the Continental Army. During the Revolutionary War, though, Washington had proposed appointing several major generals to the rank of lieutenant general, and these would have presumably been a ranking below Washington himself as general and commander-in-chief. Congress never acted on any of these recommendations to create lieutenant generals during the war, so it never happened. General Washington wore a shoulder lapel of three stars, which is what we identify today with the rank of lieutenant general. A full general, today at least, would wear four stars. A major general would wear two stars and a brigadier one star. So while Washington bore the title of general, implying full general, he wore the traditional rank of lieutenant general of three stars. Since there were no lieutenant generals in the army, this made sense. You wouldn't want Washington wearing four stars and then everyone with a rank below him wearing two. And the use of stars was not something we brought over from the British Army. The stars were a uniquely American insignia. So the use of three stars for General Washington for his rank of general made sense in that sense as well. So I say all that as a roundabout way of getting to the root of your question, why did the Continentals only have three ranks for general instead of four or five? Probably one reason was the Continental Army was smaller. It never even reached 50,000 soldiers at a single time. It never had more than 13,000 Continental soldiers in a single theater at any time. 
Now, by comparison, the British had nearly 50,000 men in peacetime, and that grew to over 200,000 regulars during the war. So it had a much larger general staff and probably found a fourth rank of general made it easier to organize them as they wanted. Britain had 18 living full generals in 1775 when the war began and 35 full generals when the war in America ended in 1783. It actually created 21 full generals in 1782 and 1783 alone. So there was a lot more rank inflation in London. Of those, though, only one full general ever served in America during the entire course of the war. That general was Sir Guy Carleton, who was promoted only near the very end of the war in 1782 and then returned to oversee the evacuation of the British Army. All of the top leadership during the war, General Howe, General Clinton, Cornwallis, they were all lieutenant generals. Britain also sometimes had field marshals, which are roughly the equivalent of five-star generals. It had some during the Seven Years' War and later for the Napoleonic Wars, but it actually had no field marshals during the Revolutionary War era. And as I said, in the war in America, even Britain found that only three ranks of generals were sufficient. If the Continental Congress had taken Washington's suggestion and promoted a few of the division commanders to a rank of lieutenant general, it probably only would have upset the majority of major generals who did not make the cut. Also, having lieutenant generals would cost more to exchange if they were captured, and they'd also require a higher salary from a notoriously cheap Congress. Washington seemed to do fine picking out division commanders from among his senior major generals, and there did not seem to be any need to establish a higher rank for those purposes. Now, this tradition lasted until the Civil War. The U.S. Army had no lieutenant generals other than Winfield Scott receiving a brevet to that rank during the Mexican War. The first full lieutenant general in the U.S. Army, other than the temporary rank that George Washington held for a year during the Quasi-War, was Ulysses S. Grant, who received that permanent rank in 1864, near the end of the Civil War. We also had a whole nother war during that era, remember, the War of 1812, and there was no rank higher than Major General during that war, not even the military commander, even though the army was larger at that time than it was during the Revolution. If you have a question for me about the American Revolution, please email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.